people do door knock and people do find success with door knocks. But of course, there's also going to be a lot higher, I wouldn't say risk, but a more likelihood of it turning sour, I guess, compared to just on the phone or a letter because they're not in front of you. If you're a passive investor wanting to learn more about questions to ask sponsors in order to qualify the opportunities, in order to qualify the sponsor, in order to qualify the market that the property is in, then go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. My team and I created this site just for you so that there is a free resource available to you to learn about the questions to ask, the things to think through prior to investing in deals. So go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. It's a free resource for you that was made just for you. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. We hate that fluffy stuff. With us today, Theo Hicks, we're going to do Follow Along Friday, where we talk about the entrepreneurial adventures, usually we talk about this, that we are doing, and more importantly, the lessons we're learning along the way. However, today we're going to be answering two listener questions, and Theo Hicks is going to read the first question, and we'll dive right in. Yep, so as Joe said, let's jump right in. The first question is from Michelle. She said, hi, Joe. I found a potentially killer, in all caps, off-market apartment building deal near me. 99-unit, three-building portfolio, bought back in 1979, just over the 39-year expiration of the depreciation tax benefits law. The owner is in his 90s and bought these buildings when they were originally built. I just called him today, but he couldn't hear me, so his wife took the phone. And as I was trying to build a rapport and ask her if they might be interested in selling, she said no and hung up. Have you ever sent a letter of intent to a seller like this with a subject to with protection for yourself, of course, to entice the seller to sell? Well, to answer your question directly, the answer is no. I haven't been in this situation where someone has an opportunity that I came across. I reached out to them and they hung up on me. So I haven't been in this situation. However, the concept or the structure of the conversation that we're about to have about this situation, I have been in, and I think most real estate investors have been in a similar structure of this type of deal or situation. And the structure is as follows. You want to buy a property, and in order to buy the property, you have to be attractive to the seller so that the seller realizes that you are the solution to their problems. That's basically what's happening. So that's why I wanted to answer your question on the show because your question goes much deeper than what meets the eye. It's actually how do we become attractive to sellers so that we can get more deals. And the first tip I have for you is get curious Because when we're curious, we tend to ask ourselves questions. And when we're curious, we tend to ask other people questions. And we tend to uncover information that can be helpful for us to identify the answers to those questions that we're having. So how I would approach this specific situation, and obviously this is going to apply to the larger situation of trying to become attractive to sellers for deals, is... I would reach out to this person again 
whether it is through a phone call or whether you said in your email, I think you mentioned that they were the owners in his nineties. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how old his wife is, but perhaps a written note would be more appropriate for them versus a phone call or probably not email, but a written note to them. And it might take a little bit longer of a courting process, but just having a written note and that way you can put your best foot forward and you can go in with pure intentions. So number one is get curious, ask yourself some questions. What could be their motivation? What are some things I could do to help them out in a situation? What are some challenges they might be coming across? And then when you're curious, the first step is to get curious. The second step is going with pure intentions. Because if you go in with pure intentions, then you're all about serving them. And people can pick up on that. If you are just looking to get the transaction done, eh, that may or may not work depending on the personality on the other side of the table. But if you go in looking to help solve some challenges that they might have, holy cow, how beneficial is that for them? And then consequently, how beneficial will that be for you? So what I would do in your situation is one, I'd get curious. I'd start asking some questions to myself. And then two, draft a letter to them and just simply learn more about their situation while introducing yourself to them and saying, hey, I'm not sure where you're at in the stage of what you're looking to do with these properties. I can tell you that you might be worried about tax liability when you sell them. You might be looking to get a chunk of cash quickly. You might looking to spread it out over the next 10 years. I'm not sure. What I can tell you is I have experience purchasing these properties in your area, and I'd be happy to talk about some solutions to any of these challenges you might be coming across to help you and your family out. That's the approach I would take. I wouldn't force fit or shove an LOI over to them because that's just not going to work. And Michelle, by you writing, hey, should I do the LOI? I think you already kind of picked up on that. That wasn't going to work. That's probably why you reached out to us. So that's the one, two step process or the one, two punch I would do. One, get curious. Two, go in with pure intentions. And in this case, write them a letter and then go from there. And you know, if they don't answer the first letter, write them another letter. And most people like getting letters. <laughs> I can tell you my mom, she loves getting handwritten letters from me. And I would say at minimum, it's something that if you're handwriting them letters, do it five, six times, maybe every two weeks or something. At minimum, it's just something that they're able to occupy their mind with a little bit and help stimulate their mind and they're getting letters. And it's probably not a bad thing regardless for them, even if they don't do a deal with you. So you're probably helping them out anyway, by just writing some handwritten letters. And then they write you back or when they write you back. And obviously you always put your phone number in the letters, but if they call you, write you back and say, hey, not interested, then just let it be. Let these 90-year-old gentlemen and his wife, let them do their thing. Let them decide what they want to do. Maybe check in six months down the road, but I personally would just let them go about their business. I wouldn't write them any more letters if they say don't do it. I agree with everything you just said, just to kind of elaborate a little bit. And then another thing that I wanted to mention as well, that might not be an ideal fix for this particular situation, but just a new way to think about finding off-market deals in general. But when you mentioned you want to approach 
the person based off of who they are. So someone who's in their 90s, as you mentioned, is most likely going to want a letter. And then uh, the curious part, obviously you want to ask yourself questions about the deal, but I think based off of Michelle's comments that it sounds like things might have been going fine until she asked to buy the property. And that's when the person hung up. So Joe, when you were explaining what to put in the letter, obviously the purpose of that letter is to buy the property, but you don't want to just come out and say, hey, I buy properties. Can I buy your property? Are you looking to sell right now? Because obviously that didn't work. So position it a different way. Ask them if they're having any challenges, present potential challenges, as Joe mentioned, and mentioned that instead of saying, do you want to sell it to me or I'll buy your property to say, would you mind speaking on the phone with me so I can present you with some potential solutions? Now, something else that I wanted to mention too, and Joe, let me know if you think this is crazy, but I interviewed a guy, actually twice, the last two times I did interviews, I interviewed the same person. His name's Preddy, and he buys multifamilies in Boston and converts them into condos, and he finds all of his deals by door knocking. So typically in Boston, these multifamily homes are actually owner-occupied by a family who owns it, be living in one unit, and then they'd renting out the rest of it. And someone who's in their 90s, they're going to appreciate the letter, but who knows, you might have success actually going there in person. Now, it could go horribly wrong as well, but people do door knock and people do find success with door knocks. But of course, there's also going to be a lot higher, I wouldn't say risk, but a more likelihood of it turning sour, I guess, compared to just on the phone or a letter because they're not in front of you. But I know it does work. And it sounds like for this particular situation, if you really want this deal and assuming that they're close, you could just send them a letter and mention that you plan on stopping by on Sunday to present these potential solutions. And if you don't get a phone call or a message back saying, don't show up, then you can show up. Just don't do it out of the blue, I guess. Probably let them know first, just in case they don't want you showing up or they're worried about meeting people in person. But ever since I interviewed Pretty and he talked about door knocking, I've just thought that it's kind of a solution to a lot of different issues people faced, particularly when looking for off-market deals. Yeah. And that's going to work better for single family homes because with large multifamily properties, if you show up at my door at my house asking to purchase my property, (laughs) there might be violence. That's so over the top. I would be furious. But with single family home, it probably works a lot better. I will tell you in this example, since we're talking about a specific example, but also how it overarching applies to other deals. With this example, what I would do is I would use that as a last resort where in my, say, the sixth letter I write, I would write in the letter, just in case you are not able to reply via the written letter, then I'm just going to stop by on Saturday at 2 p.m. and bring you a gift basket for it being Veterans Day or Memorial Day weekend or, or something like that. Just make up a reason for giving them a gift that's relevant. And if that time doesn't work for you, then feel free to give me a call and let me know and I won't stop by. That way you're giving them a heads up, you're coming over, but you're also giving them a way out to call you and say, don't show your face on my property and then show up and see if it works. So yeah, I'm with you on that. I make a note to not just show up at your house out of the blue, ask me by. Oh, you can show up to a house out of the blue anytime. Here's some random person asking to buy a property of mine and you show up at my house. That's way too much. All right. So that was Michelle's question. The next question was also interesting. It's from Rich. And Rich asks, the GP, general partnership, so this is all about apartment syndication. The GP controls the business plan. 
I assume they also control the checking accounts associated with the project. How does one protect themselves from the general partnership embezzling funds from the operational account? Is there an auditing protocol of some kind to protect the passive investor from outright theft? Yes, and let's talk about that. So first off, Rich, enjoyed our conversation yesterday. So Rich reached out to Ashcroft Capital, my company. So I talked to him yesterday, but he submitted this question a week ago. So we had already had this in queue to talk about on Follow on Friday. And one thing, a little bit of context to this question that he didn't mention in the question that I can add, and he's okay with me adding this, is that Rich lost $300,000 on an investment because the woman who he was investing with that was a note investor, she committed fraud. And consequently, she went to federal prison. I don't know if she's still in prison or not, but he lost $300,000 and still has not recouped that. So that is the reason why he is asking this question about checking to make sure that the general partner is not embezzling funds from the operating account. Now, the short answer is, well, I'll approach it in two ways. One is I'll tell you what you can do to have some checks and balances before the deal, which quite frankly, isn't a whole lot. But then after the deal closes, you can do a whole lot more because there is no money for a shady general partner to take before the deal, but you can do some due diligence prior to the deal. But really, if they're going to steal money from the entity, then they'd have to do it afterwards because that's when the money's in the bank account. So here are some things you can do before, but really we're going to focus our time on what you can do after the deal closes to make sure everything's on the up and up. So before the deal closes, what you can do is one, just look at the structure of the deal, make sure that there's an 8% preferred return, make sure that the general partner is getting paid an asset management fee only if they are actually performing and they're returning the preferred return. Now, these are things that aren't going to prevent someone from stealing money, but it's just making sure that the deal itself is set up so that you have alignment of interest. And in addition to that, you can ask them for the previous deals that they have done and then look those deals up on sec.gov and make sure that they are registered with the SEC. You can just go to sec.gov, look up the entity that owns the property, and it will be registered under sec.gov. Those are some things you can do before the deal. Now, once you close on the deal, and obviously check references, check references, references, check references, references, references. You go three degrees, three layers deep of people, you're going to get a good picture of what they're all about, and then Google them. But those are things you're probably already doing. Then it doesn't directly answer the question you're asking about how do you make sure they're not embezzling money. But there is some prep work that needs to be done on the front end to mitigate the risk of getting in with a group that are criminals. So now let's talk about once the deal closes. So once the deal closes, I have listed four things to take a look at. Well, really three. And then there's a fourth that I'll just mention. One is, as I mentioned earlier, making sure that the deal is registered on sec.gov. So you are a limited partner in a deal. You have ownership in an entity that should own the property. 
you can go on scc.gov, look up the entity that you're an owner in, and make sure that offering is registered on the website. So that's number one. Number two is you can ask the general partner to send you what's called the special warranty deed. That special warranty deed shows that the entity you are an owner in purchased the property. It's notarized and has signatures. So that's the second thing you can do. And then the third thing is, again, to directly address your question, you're asking about a general partner stealing money. Well, looking to see if it's registered on sec.gov, I get it. That doesn't directly address if they're stealing the money, but it certainly will give you an indication of if you should continue to look further or not if they have an offering that they've raised money for, but it's not actually registered with SEC. That's a big red flag. The second is the special warranty deed, same thing. That's a big problem. If they don't have a special warranty deed to show that the entity that you are an owner in actually purchased the property, what the hell happened then? <laughs> what did your entity actually do? So they don't have that. There's a big problem. So the third is ongoing financial. So here's where you could really check to see if someone is very crooked, then there's probably always going to be a way that they can manipulate the profit and loss statement and the balance sheet. I'm sure they can recreate a document and make it look like something that it's not. But when you get the profit and loss statement and the balance sheet, and this is the fourth thing, if it comes from a third-party property management company, which we use, it would have to be a major, major, major scam where they're also bringing in the third-party property management company into their scam. What are the chances of that actually happening? So I think if you look at the registration on sec.com, gov number one, number two, look at the special warranty deed. Number three, look at the profit and loss statement as well as the balance sheet because that's going to show cash on hand. And number four, if they are working with a third-party property management company, you've pretty much got enough checks and balances in place to make sure that everything's on the up and up and you're 99.9% .9 of the time going to be good. There's always an outlier with anything in life, but I think those are four things you can do and feel pretty darn confident that everything is going how it should be going. All right. I have nothing to add to that. Appreciate that. And Rich, Joe's already answered your question. Anyone else who's potentially facing a similar situation or wants to know what to do to avoid Rich's situation, now you have your solution. Just to wrap things up, let's go to the trivia question. So last week's trivia question was, in 2018, the total jobs increased by a little under 2%. And the question was, how many MSAs experienced job growth of 3% or greater? Very specific question. <laughs> Obviously, I kind of reevaluated and move away from these types of questions in the future. But for now, the answer was nine. So if you were the first person to get that right, you should be receiving a free copy of our first book. Do you know what I said? Six. Six. Okay. One, two, four. So Price is Right rules you real close. <laughs> this week's question, I thought this was kind of interesting. So the profession with the highest rate of owner-occupied home ownership is 90.4%. I think like the average is like in the 60s. What is that profession? So this isn't a trick question. It's not some obscure job industry. So what profession 
has the highest rate of home ownership? Real estate agents? Ooh, that was number two. Damn. You're really close. <laughs> All right. All right. So I've already eliminated that one from contention. So what is number one? I think real estate agent was in the mid 80s, huh? like 85%. So that's a good guess, Joe. Well, I mean, it was pretty blatant. I wish I got it right, but I'm glad there's something else out there that's number one. Interested to hear the answer next week. All right. And then lastly, the best ever apartment syndication book review of the week. This week is from Dylan, who said, from starting with minimal knowledge of apartment syndication, I can say this book dramatically increased my understanding in the apartment syndication process from A to Z. If you're serious about using other people's money to create a successful real estate portfolio, then don't think twice. The book provides actionable advice, but also asks the hard questions about who you have to become to be a successful apartment syndicator. Dylan, you're the man. Thank you for investing your time and writing a review. I know your time's valuable. I appreciate it. Best ever listeners. Hope you got a lot of value from today's conversation. Hope you have a best ever weekend. We'll talk to you tomorrow. If you're a passive investor and want to learn more about Ashcroft Capital, the company I co-founded with my business partner, Frank, and in particular, want to learn more about our strategy and how we think about the opportunities that we purchase, go to ashcroftcapital.com and click the strategy button above and you'll be able to read through our thought process we use when we're purchasing multifamily properties. Are you interested in getting started in real estate syndication but don't know how? My friend Whitney Sewell is the host of the Daily Real Estate Syndication Show podcast. He interviews top experts in the industry to help you learn the cutting edge tools and strategies of the syndication business. You can find Whitney and his podcast at lifebridgecapital.com.